Welcome to the Neurosurgeon's Journey, part of the Library of Brain and Spine Group's Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center and a collaboration with the AANS's Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I'm your co-host, Michael Quartz. I'm currently the Senior Student Director of Education Resources for MSNTC, and shortly we'll be joined by your other co-host, Dr. Jeremiah Johnson. He is an Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Baylor College of Medicine and is the current Chair of the YNC. We're happy to have you with us as we look deeper into the rewarding life of a neurosurgeon and explore what it takes to get there. Good afternoon slash midday to everyone. Um, we're working from multiple time zones. Dr. Johnson, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Michael. Thank you for being flexible with my always hit and miss schedule. Yeah, no, it's uh, that's probably our biggest challenge in, in uh, getting these recording sessions together. And I've been impressed with how well we've done so far. So uh, no problem there. So our topic today is a great follow-up on a previous discussion we had with Dr. Zada and Dr. Toom talking about residency applications in the COVID era. But we get a unique perspective from two fourth-year medical students who are applying right now, uh, who have just put their applications in, and can give us a little perspective on the challenges that they faced. Um, to help us do that, uh, we have Michael Rothbaum and Saqib Huck. I'll start with Michael Rothbaum. He's a fourth-year medical student applying to neurosurgery residency uh, this year and attends New York Medical College. He serves as a senior student director of education programs for the Medical Student Neurosurgery Training Center. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Uh, we're happy to have you on. Um, and then Saqib Huck, uh, he's also a fourth-year medical student, as I said, applying to neurosurgery residency this year and uh, attends Johns Hopkins University. Um, and he's also a mission fellow on the Young Neurosurgeons Committee. Saqib, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're really excited about your guys' perspectives. So Dr. Johnson, you know, kind of how we talked about uh, with Dr. Zada and Dr. Toom, um, I think it'd be good to just, if you uh, want to quick summarize why um, things are a little bit different this year in terms of uh, the COVID impact on the residency application cycle before we uh, get into the perspectives um, from Saqib and Michael. Yeah, no problem. So an overview, even for those who aren't who aren't medical students and who may not know the process. So um, just just to go start at the beginning. So after you finish your undergrad, you get into med school. Typically, your first few years of medical school are focused on learning pathology, uh, biochemistry, et cetera, of the human body, anatomy. As you progress through uh, medical school, particularly in your third and fourth years, you transition to being more inside the hospital and doing various rotations uh, of different disciplines of medicine. For example, internal medicine, OBGYN, general surgery, even pathology in some cases. So you, you really bounce around and, and there's two reasons for that. One is both to learn those different specialties to some degree or be exposed to them, but also to see what kind of field you may be interested in pursuing after your medical school training is over. So typically speaking, um, folks that are interested in neurosurgery may or may not have a direct exposure to that in their third year. Um, and so, so if you're interested in applying as a neurosurgical resident to get full neurosurgical training after you're done with medical school, um, you need to have an exposure to that process. So in that process, typically in your fourth year, you, you have an elective at your home institution's neurosurgery program. And if you don't have one at your institution, a nearby one that can kind of serve as a surrogate home institution. So generally speaking, you have at least that one 
sort of baseline experience of about four weeks where you spend time on neurosurgical service with residents and you round with them, you go to surgery with them uh, as well as attendings, et cetera. From that experience, you both confirm your interest and that's a, you know, a lifestyle and a surgical specialty you want to pursue. And generally speaking, even before that, you've had to set up a way rotation. So this is rotations that is kind of a standard thing in nurse surgery. You had to go to at least one, if not two additional neurosurgical programs and spend a month typically um, doing the same thing, but at another program. And that also gets you to have more experience in neurosurgery to a confirm that something you want to continue to pursue because it's a long training path, um, as well as gets the other different programs exposure to different students that they may want to match. And then finally, the thing that comes out of that is that the different programs will write a letter of recommendation for these students, which is then included in their application to um, all the residency programs that they choose to apply to. Um, and it gives a it gives a bit of a roadmap about their performance and what the different programs think of them. And if it's very favorable, of course, that's very good for the, for the applicant, um, et cetera. Um, so after the away rotations process, then what uh, happens is that you have to bring together your CV essentially onto something called ERAS which is an application portal where everyone's connected um, and you get your brother's recommendation, your board scores, your grades, uh, and a whole host of other things that these guys know more about than I do and push it through to a final application stage, which I believe they just did. So you have to push send, you have to choose which programs you want to send your application to and push send. And then it's on the programs to review all the applications they receive, choose people to interview. And then out of usually around 40 to 60 people interviewed, they whittle it down to uh, a match process whereby you go to interviews, um, which are offered to different applicants. And then everyone interviews in a typical year, you go to different interviews around the country in person, interview with the faculty, they interview you, you see the campus, you see the program. Um, and then both the medical students as well as the programs then match their list of places they would like to either train. And then the programs match the list of places of people they would like to match into their program. And then the computer algorithm, algorithm sews them all together and comes up with matches for you, for the various students. Um, so that's the typical year. Now, like that's the framework for discussions of this year, whereas COVID has severely limited the ability to do the away rotations and have exposure to some of these programs. Um, but that's kind of the background. That's a great overview. Um, and uh, I think it kind of informs and puts into context the rest of our discussion. So, <clears throat> um, you know, we'd like to certainly uh, where you guys are at young in your training, we'd love to hear, you know, how you got to where you are now and tell us a little bit about why you chose neurosurgery and the, uh, what you've learned about yourself in the process. So, uh, Saqib, let's start with you. Um, why don't you kind of just highlight um, some of the key points of your journey and, and uh, some things that you think uh, would apply to a lot of the applicants this year and to those in the future. Sure. So my path to neurosurgery began during college um, between my sophomore and junior year. I was back home in Pittsburgh over the summer and I'd spent about two weeks shadowing some neurosurgeons at the University of Pittsburgh there. And for reasons we can talk about, you know, I just got this gut feeling at that point that, you know, this was what something I was really serious about doing with my life. And so, you know, that was an early interest that became more of a legitimate pursuit later on for me. I ended up spending one of my gap years before medical school working in a lab at Pitt. And then in med school, toward the end of my first year, I joined a research lab at Hopkins that um, was great, sort of became a, a launching pad and home base for you know, getting to know the med student community um, that's interested in neurosurgery here, as well as the research community and, and uh, getting to know the clinical program as well. 
And so, you know, I'd continued with that through second year and through a research year. And then on the clinical side, as Dr. Johnson mentioned, you know, during the third year surgery clerkship, I'd spent a couple of weeks on the neurosurgery service. I just kind of affirmed that, you know, this was the greatest thing I could possibly do with my life. And, you know, that this was what I wanted to do. Um, and then more recently, just finished up the home sub-eye and, and neurocritical care rotation. So, you know, it's been a really fun ride. I've enjoyed it. Just submitted ERAS, as you guys said. So uh, now we're kind of at that point of uh, sitting back and, you know, hopefully waiting for interview season to start up here. Michael, how about you? Yeah, so mine was a little bit earlier than that. Uh, I've known, I, I've said I wanted to be a neurosurgeon since I was about five years old. Uh, my grandmother actually had essential tremors. And I used to always say I wanted to uh, learn about her brain so I could fix it and make it better. And what started out as this kind of like joke as a child uh, really kind of grew into this passion throughout my entire life. And I got to college. Um, and incidentally, one of my, the close friends that I made early on, his father uh, is a neurosurgeon in New York City. And I met him when he came up during parents weekend. And he told me that I can go and shadow him after my freshman year. And I did that. And the first time I went to the OR and I, I saw a brain in front of me, I, it was like being a kid in a candy shop. It really like the same passion I had as a child was there. Uh, and after I graduated from uh, undergrad at Cornell, I went and worked at the medical school while Cornell for two years in the Department of Neurosurgery uh, in a research position. But any chance I had, uh, I would go to the OR uh, and observe and learn with the residents and the attendings. So I went to medical school pretty sure that I was going to go into neurosurgery. And when I took my neurosciences course block and everyone else was you know, stressed and not loving the course, I couldn't wait to get up every day and study a little bit more uh, and see what else it was for me to learn. And then uh, similarly, in my third year, we have a four-week elective block and I did a neurosurgery rotation um, at Westchester Medical Center, which is where I ended up doing my sub-eyes uh, as well, uh, which is my home program. And just again and again, uh, it kept being the one thing that made me more happy than anything else in medicine. And again, I uh, submitted my heiress on Tuesday night, waiting for interviews to come in. It's kind of hard to believe that the one thing I've always wanted to do is actually uh, going to become a reality in just a couple months. Yeah, we're rooting for you guys big time. Um, and uh, thanks for like, giving us a little bit about your background. And uh, there's definitely some differences there that I think is relatable um, to a wide group of audience. I think some people's experiences like you, Michael, where you grew up and that's what you wanted to do from day one um, with, you know, obviously some other things that happened and then uh, Saqib, you know, uh, a little bit later, but uh, everyone's experience is um, interesting and valid. And so uh, let's check in a little bit. Um, you guys just submitted, I'm sure the day before was a lot different than the day after, but there's a lot of anxiety on both sides. How would you differentiate those those two days, the day before and the day after, um, in terms of submitting your uh, applications and now kind of just waiting to see where you're gonna you're gonna land and wait for interviews? Uh -huh. You know, I, I would say by nature I'm a very meticulous, very methodical person. So I was sitting with a hard copy uh, of my Aris application and a uh, red pen and an orange highlighter going through, making sure that everything was spelled correctly, all the commas were in place, really making sure that uh, I hadn't spelled anyone's name on my research section, triple reading my personal statement. And then I press submit, I put the paper in the shredder and there's nothing I can do anymore. I feel uh, very much at peace <laughs> right now, which is, a, which is a nice feeling. I like to keep everything before there's like anxiety for what's to come, but for right now, there's nothing I can do, but enjoy the rest of my life and keep going on with the process. So keep, I want to kind of take a little bit 
more general approach um, for you. Since March, since the pandemic reared its head, how have things progressed over the last seven, eight months in terms of, you know, where you were at in, in early March and, you know, thinking things were going to be, you know, traditional in terms of the application process. And then within six to eight weeks, everything was going up in flames, so to say. Of course. Yeah. I mean, COVID obviously has been tough for everybody. Uh, you know, for me, I, around March, I was in the thick of my research year. Um, so I've been doing, you know, both some laboratory research and some clinical research. And around that time, everything started shutting down, right? So all the labs around here were closing down and I basically stopped all of my lab research at that point and pivoted more towards some of the clinical work that I was doing. Uh, so transition, you know, like many people transitioned to uh, purely working from home. Uh, and then it kind of became that familiar sequence that I'm sure you guys uh, experienced of, you know, quarantine days kind of blurring together, Zoom taking over our lives. Um, but, you know, I think there were definitely some positives that came out of it. You know, I think with Zoom, we saw groups of people coming together that otherwise might not have. Um, so I saw that with some research stuff that I was working on, um, even friends and family coming together. Uh, and, you know, definitely we can talk about, you know, all the virtual content um, within neurosurgery that's been pretty incredible. But, uh, you know, definitely some stir crazy moments. But, you know, overall, I feel very fortunate I was able to adapt and, you know, keep staying productive. You know, I don't want to take that for granted. But it's, uh, you know, certainly been an adjustment. I think a lot of things will be the same this year, but a lot of things are certainly different. We're all kind of working through it uh, as we move along. Absolutely. Dr. Johnson, I would love to hear, you know, experience at Baylor and then obviously on the clinical side, how uh, things have progressed over the last seven, eight months and how you think some of those principles apply um, on the program side for medical students going through the process right now. Right. Yeah. Interesting question. So similar to what Saqib said, there was a period of time where uh, I think it was a little bit earlier in the Northeast, obviously, than it was in the rest of the country. Um, So there's this great feeling of uncertainty as March and April came through where, um, you know, we do a lot of emergency procedures. And so we were very closely watching our COVID numbers. um, And uh, at that point, um, as they begin to rise, uh, you know, our medical school very reasonably decided to start limiting access for non-essential learners to um, our clinical program. So, you know, the medical students who were planning on having their clinical rotations and away rotations, a thing that, that, um, that's, that kind of got put on hold. And essentially is a, just like the rest of the world, everyone had to figure out how to adapt to the new normal with safety protocols. And, um, you know, what do you do with a COVID positive patient that needs an emergency surgery? How does that work? Um, there's no testing, <laughs> you know, how, so, so you got to go max protection. Uh, so there's just a whole reworking of the whole medical system to adapt for the COVID possible COVID positive patients. And that took a lot of time and energy and effort to sort that out. So it made a lot of sense to kind of simplify things as much as you could during that period. Um, in our, in our s- sort of area, you know, the real peak in the COVID cases thus far happened in much later in like in late June and July, even a little bit into August. Um, so, so, you know, our ICUs filled up, um, twice, once in the spring and then once again in the summer. And thankfully we haven't had any kind of massive overspill, but they've certainly filled up and had to open accessory ICUs and things like that twice. 
Um, so in that process, we've had to figure out how, what to do with all the medical students and the learning. And, and, and as was alluded to, I think the virtual, the virtual um, boom of education and connection has been, um, you know, amazing. I, I just don't even imagine what, what this experience would have been like 20 years ago and this didn't exist. It would be, it'd be very, very different, different, um, experience to go through. But, um, and in general, I think that the, the students have ended up, and we can talk more about that later, getting their, essentially their one home rotation. And then they did their rotation on general surgery. And these are our students at our institution. So they at least eventually got their exposure and their experience and their letters. So it hasn't been a complete loss, but they haven't been able to do the away rotations like they have in years past. So that's something that everyone's going to have to adapt to. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us think of COVID as in, in, you know, very appropriately as a big challenge. Um, and a lot of states are seeing another huge spike in cases, and even as we speak. And so we certainly want to send our best to everyone struggling with that right now. But turning our thinking a little bit and, and seeing some of the opportunity that has arisen out of this uh, tremendous challenge. Um, on the student side, uh, Michael, obviously, you've been involved with the Nurse Surgery Training Center for a long time. Um, and you've been a part of it pre and now intra COVID. Um, how do you think that virtual resources have really changed the narrative on equitable, um, neurosurgery education, uh, for medical students? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously COVID has been a terrible, terrible experience that comes with tremendous loss, but I think that it's really pushed a certain level of innovation and creativity amongst most fields, but particularly the medical, uh, medical field, and I think will have lasting impacts for, for the best. Uh, I was in the middle of planning the in-person 2020 neurosurgery training camps at Cornell, Northwestern, and USC, when obviously we had to cancel everything because of the pandemic. And for a while, we were sitting thinking, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to push it back to later on in the spring? We had no clue what, uh, what the course of this pandemic would eventually look like. And as it became apparent that we were not in fact going to be able to reschedule, we started to plan these one-off webinars. And from the webinars, we decided to reschedule our training camps into virtual training camps. We decided to create a seminar series. Now we have a webinar series. And I think that, you know, in the past we had these courses, which were first of all, new in and of themselves, this was just gonna be the first third year of these courses. But now we've created this online content that's being used by students, not just all around the country, but all around the world. And they're available on a YouTube website and on the Neurosurgery Training Center uh, website in the video library. So you don't just have to be there for that day to access it. If you are on a clinical rotation or you have some sort of family event, whatever it might be, you can go back to that content. Um, and it's content that's very specifically designed for medical students. So I think from the training center side, it's, very, it's still very new for us. We're the ones producing it and we keep adapting to what students need. It'll be very interesting and hopefully exciting to see how other uh, specialties, both surgical and medical subspecialties, follow suit um, to provide students all around the nation and all around the world with great medical education, hopefully regard uh, without a pandemic, but you know, to still have uh, the groundwork laid for that. Right. So I, I remember I had my neurosurgery elective for third year canceled in April, and I was super pumped about being able to attend the Northwestern camp. And I remember all that happening and I was like, well, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do now. And uh, certainly from just a student perspective, having the ability to, I mean, it's different. You don't get to do everything with your hands and 
some of the, you know, in real time education in person is kind of hard to replace, but the, at least from an educational side, there is a, a huge gap to be filled. And I think the MSNTC and now the YNC with the webinar series of uh, work to fill that. And I think once things kind of get back to normal, there'll be an opportunity to combine all those great, the best of both worlds in a lot of ways and um, continue to innovate uh, education. And to my knowledge, I don't know if there's really a, an equivalent in other specialties. Maybe there are, but the, to my to my knowledge, there really isn't something out there that's doing what MSNTC and now YNC are doing. So, um, Sakib, I'd like to redirect that a little bit. So we're talking about the resource, the very technical side. Are there any things that you think you've learned um, as a function of the COVID pandemic about yourself or things that you've been forced to do differently than you would have in a normal year? Um, I know for reference, I've had a lot of students really have to, you know, spend a lot of time and focus on, on themselves and like their mental health and maybe working on other things that, you know, you said you were able to switch to your clinical research stuff. Um, are there other things that you think that you've really been able to foster and encourage that you might not have been able to in a normal year? Yeah, it's a great question. It, uh, you know, like we were saying, everybody's been trying to find ways to adapt and to, um, you know, sort of stay, stay productive and stay healthy. And I think for on my end, you know, some of the changes that, that we've had to make are really, you know, from an application standpoint, being, uh, being much more proactive really reaching out to people, trying to learn as much as we can about uh, different places, you know, talking with our, our residents at our home programs about their experiences with sub eyes and, uh, you know, with traveling around, around the country. But really to your question more about the personal side of things, I think we've all had to, um, you know, find ways to adjust and, and do things that keep us healthy, figure out, you know, think about what really makes us happy. Um, you know, for me, you know, a, a big thing, a simple but important one is just you know, maintaining some sort of physical activity. And, uh, you know, that's tough when, you know, gyms are closed, you, you're kind of limiting time outside. Uh, so on my end, one of the, one of the great things I'm glad I did was, uh, completing the insanity workout program. If you guys ever did that one back in the day, I'm basically jumping around my apartment uh, with my girlfriend you know, every day, probably our neighbors probably hated us, but, but you know, it, it was finding something to maintain some level of, uh, of health and, and wellness uh, and really staying connected to the people around you too. I mean, I think the sense of social isolation was one of the toughest parts for a lot of people. Uh, so, you know, I, I definitely got on some Zoom calls with, you know, friends from, from high school, college, you know, keeping up with classmates and, and all that sort of stuff. So it, it was certainly an adjustment and we're still kind of in the midst of it now, but tried to figure out what those things are that you need uh, to be happy, to be healthy. Uh, and really prioritizing those things. Um, that's awesome. I, I I would love to see a video of you guys jumping around your apartment. <laughs> um, but in in light of that, it is a podcast, and I'm not sure the audio yeah. is fine. Um, so uh, I want to ask a quick question for Michael and maybe Sakib as well uh, to follow. So let's just say you're new. You're applying this year in January. Um, what was your calendar? and sort of like lead up planned versus what ended up happening? And then how did you adapt, uh, you know, using technology with the virtual sub eyes? How did you adapt and, and, and learn your way to navigate through the, the sudden changes as far as getting to that ERAS application click button? Yeah, um, I can start out if you'd like. I, so I 
had actually been planning on doing uh, my home sub-I and then three different away rotations. Um, I was really interested in checking out a lot of different geographic areas and also looking at a lot of different hospitals. So I would have been doing sub-I's July, August, September, and October, um, and then taking step two just before uh, starting interviews. Um, it ended up changing, so I did my home sub-I July and August, and then was able to fit in uh, two of my other important clinical rotations early on in the year with my neurosurgical ICU in September and my emergency medicine rotation that I just finished up in October. So um, I think the way that I handled it was really just by changing my perspective. Um, first of all, realizing that I was able to get a lot of my requirements out of the way earlier on in the year, instead of having them you know, hanging over through interview season um, and then through you know, post-match, which was definitely a positive. And then also while I was trying to do four different sub-eyes uh, and going to one was definitely a bit of a change, but I ended up finding tremendous value in that. I think finding the value in that is what really changed my experience of the entire process. Um, I think being at one institution for two months really allowed me to get comfortable with the team, brought me to the point where I was able to rely on them and ask good questions and have them feel comfortable challenging me as well. Um, it made me wonder, you know, how the paradigm might be shifted in the future, even in the absence of a pandemic. You know, what is the value of uh, having this more integrated, this longer training at a single institution um, before going off and kind of realizing what it feels like to not just be a transient medical student, like I felt a lot of my third year, but really a part of the team, which is what I'm looking for in a residency program. Um, I think just a change of perspective is what really helped me to adapt uh, to all the changes that are coming this year. That's awesome. And, and how did you accommodate for lacking the away, ro away rotation experience though? Yeah. So that was actually particularly hard for me because I had been on rotations during the time when most of these virtual sub eyes and all of these meet and greets were happening. Uh, you know, when I was on my own sub eye, I would leave the hospital rather late and couldn't uh, reliably hop onto other people's meetings. I actually relied a lot on my friends who were applying to neurosurgery to hear, you know, what did they say about the different programs I do my own research on the internet um, and just networking whichever way possible. I would say it was something that I feel fortunate about with the neurosurgery training center is I've built this network of other students who are involved in neurosurgery and interested in neurosurgery. So really kind of relying on that network and also the faculty members that I've worked with through the training center as well to get a better understanding of what's happening this year. Excellent. Sakiba, I'd like to ask you roughly the same question because I think it is, is important for this topic is to understand what was your plan and then how did it change and how did you adapt? Definitely. So what Michael said really resonates. I think timing wise, thinking back to around December, January, uh, that's when I was thinking about where I was going to be doing my sub eyes and getting those applications in for the away sub eyes. And then I was planning to do the home sub eye in May. Uh, May and June, aways in July and August, then submitting ERAS in mid-September. And then really around now would have normally been really the thick or kind of the beginning of the interview season. Right. And so, you know, obviously a lot of that got pushed back. There was some uncertainty. Uh, I think there was an incredible um, mobilization of, you know, neurosurgery leadership in the community kind of coming together early on and talking about what the changes might look like and coming up with this kind of unified front, creating a response to that. And so we had some, uh, you know, some guidance about how we would have to adjust. But I think, uh, you know, like Michael said, we, uh, in a way, we got some time back. We, you know, we, I would echo what he said about having a little more time at our home department. 
I, I ended up doing my home sub I later on. And, and I actually appreciated having some of that extra time at home. Uh, like Michael said, I, I think it allowed for more, you know, more integration into the team. You have this sense of continuity and this immersion that I thought was really beneficial, uh, you know, for learning and getting to know people here. Um, you know, certainly not being able to do the aways is, is a is a downside, but uh, there were some positives that came out of it. But otherwise, a lot of things have been similar. You know, the, I think the general process for getting uh, components of your ERAS application together are pretty much the same. Um, we, we had pretty much an extra month to, to get our materials together and be thinking about all of that. So, you know, a lot of things have been the same. I think it was kind of realizing early on that we would have to be open-minded and be willing to adapt to change here and just kind of roll with the punches. And, you know, having that attitude, it's kind of just taking it as it comes. Did you, either of you find the more limited or at least less diverse experiences to be a problem when it came to letters of recommendation or anything like this? Yeah, you know, it's, I know that was a big area of conversation around the neurosurgery community. And there was this, um, you know, it was decided that we would get two to three letters from neurosurgeons and then a letter from a general surgeon as well. Um, I, you know, I feel fortunate I was able to sort of sort out that situation. We had some notice to be able to figure it out, but, um, but, you know, it did come with a challenge. Certainly. I think a lot of people were planning on probably getting, you know, a couple letters from a home institution or nearby institution, and then probably getting one letter from uh, each sub I that they were planning to do. And so uh, a lot of people certainly made some changes in their planning there. Um, but I think we were, we were able to have some time to, um, figure out a game plan for that. Yeah. I, I personally felt a little bit fortunate because I'd taken two years to do research project before medical school. So, uh, at a different neurosurgery department. So I had a bit of diversity there. And then one of the, um, one of the faculty members I worked very closely with that during my sub, I had come to Westchester medical center just a year before that. So uh, she had a perspective on uh, you know, different programs, different types of training as well. So even within the limitations of this year, I still felt I was able to get some diverse letters and a lot of diverse perspectives as well. Also, again, about shifting perspective. I also recognize that for the programs, this was a very challenging uh, year to write letters because they're using the standardized letter for the first time. So even my chairman, uh, you know, wasn't entirely sure going into it, what it would mean to use these letters. My general surgeon who I asked for a letter had not even heard that this is something that was being done. So I think it's easier to go into something new and you recognize that everyone is going through it with you. Um, it takes off some of that individual pressure that uh, I had put on myself and that I think a lot of my colleagues had put on themselves as well. So I'd like to um, take everything that you guys have learned in the last seven, eight months and maybe condense it into a couple of things that you really think that you know, whether it's related to COVID and the the things that you've learned because of that, or just because of the application process itself, you guys are fresh, you guys are the people to ask about potential lessons learned that you think every neurosurgery applicant should know moving forward. Um, so, uh, so Keith, why don't we just start with you? If there's anything that you really think, maybe a couple things that I'd love to hear if you have, if you have any thoughts on that. Definitely. Yeah. I think in general, for anybody who has any sort of inclination toward neurosurgery, I'd say get involved early, you know, put yourself out there. If it's, whether it's before medical school, early on in medical school, um, you know, get to know, you know, as a first year med student, get to know the other med students who are also interested in neurosurgery. I think for me, some of the best resources, you know, mentors and, and good friends are people who were a year or two ahead of me 
in med school and kind of knew the ropes of all the little nitty gritty things that you would have to do at each step of the process to be prepared by the time you were fourth year applying. Um, so, you know, get to know those students. If your home institution has a neurosurgery interest group, join that. That's a great starting point. And now there's incredible virtual resources as well. You know, this podcast being a perfect example of sort of getting plugged into that community. But the biggest thing I think that applies, especially in this COVID era, but uh, more broadly is to seek out mentors. And, you know, some of the best advice that I got early on that I try to always pass along is that, you know, mentorship isn't something that just happens. It's not, you know, a passive thing where you sit back and, and expect some neurosurgeon to come knocking on your door asking to mentor you. You know, that's, that's not going to happen. You know, it's an active process, right? It requires initiative. So you identify people who could be potential mentors. And the way I was told is, you know, you find a way to make yourself useful to that person. And so, that, you know, that might mean doing research with them. That might mean something with global health, medical education, something clinical, you know, whatever it is, you're doing something that is uh, of value for that person. And in that process, you develop a relationship with them. And, and through that, you end up getting that mentorship that you're looking for. And I think if you're able to do that early on and build some of those sort of mentoring relationships, it ends up being incredibly helpful when it comes time to you know, be applying for neurosurgery. And especially when some changes get thrown at you, like we've had this year, uh, having that support system in place is really key. And by the way, that, that answer by Saqib is, is, is golden. I would, I would hold on to that if you're a listener, uh, particularly bringing value towards the mentor somehow or looking for ways to. I think that, you know, very often as a faculty, we, we become approached to people like, hey, you know, I, I want to be mentored. You know, and it, they, oftentimes the onus is on us to figure out how to help them become mentored. Um, but the ones that have, the times that I've been particularly impressed is when the student finds the way they want to help or contribute or whatever and approaches you about it and you're like oh that's a really good idea and then they have the passion for it and they move that forward on their own that's even more impressive to me than you know the more you know hey how can i get involved with you somehow which you know takes some brain power to figure out how to make that work sometimes so just from a, a bit of a behind the scenes practical aspect um, that may be helpful to people and that concept applies on um certainly my conversation with residents at Colorado, I mean, they've made it clear that if you, instead of just asking, you know, how you can help being very, you know, using your common sense and being very diligent about, you know, plugging in without having to just ask and trying to appear like you're being a part of the team and just being a part of the team and being very cognizant of, you know, the goals of the team and a particular scenario or that sort of thing. And so I think that, you know, I think that's partly why, like Dr. Johnson said, it is impressive for students to do that because it shows that they're going to be a great part of the team down the road. And it shows something that's, you know, kind of not teachable right away anyway. It's like, you know, being, you know, dependable and showing initiative and that sort of thing. Insight, um, thoughtfulness. Absolutely. Some degree and intellect about the situation to understand what needs to be done and, and, and you know, put it out there instead of being told. Yeah, it's great. Right. It could be a small, it could be in clinical setting. It could be in like a PGY one or, or you guys are MS ones, I guess. I'm so used to PGYs, um, you know, bringing an idea for a project or something that you want to do to make the, the, the department better or something. It could be a lot of things, but, um, but the concept of both being around the folks that you want to be mentored by, but also looking for ways to contribute um, uniquely in, in, is very helpful. Right. 
So Michael, I'd love to hear if you, you have thoughts as well on that. Um, yeah. I mean, that's going to be a hard, made. that's going to be a hard answer to follow. I was going to say something very similar about mentorship. Uh, you can just actually just, I hope you wrote it down. You can just repeat exactly what was said. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not going to repeat something that's already been said so beautifully, but I, I will say something that I've learned um, in line with mentorship is also to pay it forward. Uh, you know, I feel lucky to be at a point in my medical school career where I can serve as a mentor for younger students, uh, I, I strive to do it as the president of my AANS chapter. I strive to do it um, through the neurosurgery training center. And, you know, the whole point of being a mentor for other people is to build something that lasts. That way, when challenges do get thrown our way, you know, maybe it's someone struggles with a research project that they were working on or with a test or a board score or something as crazy as a pandemic, to have institutions of mentors in place where people can really gather together as a community and learn to rely on one another. I think mentorship is very much an individual thing, but I think that there are channels and communities that really foster mentorship. I think neurosurgery, by virtue of the type of people who go into it and by virtue of its small size, uh, is inherently uh, set up to provide great mentors, but I think that we can continue to work on smaller, more formal avenues to continue to create mentors so we continue to build this field together. Another outstanding answer. Very good. Yeah. You guys are impressive. Um, and I'd like to throw a, a quick plug, you know, for MSNTC and, and the YNC for students out there who, you know, either they don't have home programs or they feel late to the game or, or that sort of thing, you know, trying to get plugged into these organizations is a great way to get connected. Um, building friendships and acquaintances and mentors and that sort of thing um, through a common goal. I think like Dr. Johnson said is really um, important. So um, we'll have links, uh, information related to the episode on the website, but I encourage you guys to check out the website, um, as well as some of the YNC resources, uh, like neurosurgerymatch.org. That's really good too. Do you guys have anything else to add? I think we've, this has been a really profound conversation and I think it's going to help a lot of people, uh, whether it's this year or in the future. Um, but I'd love to hear if you guys have any final thoughts, um, to close us out. No, I mean, I guess I would just say that this, uh, I think, is really like a testament to what what's happened since the pandemic, right? Bringing together four people who didn't know each other, who can all be in their different corners of the world mm-hmm. uh, together on a Sunday to talk about the one thing that they're all really passionate about uh, and to build that sense of community. So thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, and I would echo that. I mean, we've kind of touched on how I think as a field, neurosurgery has really been a leader in responding to COVID, adapting you know, creating all this virtual content to support students this year, but really, uh, I think creating some lasting changes and platforms that I definitely hope will stick around. So, you know, I would give a shout out to some of the people who have really been leading the charge with this, you know, all, all uh, you guys, of course, and, you know, early on people like, uh, like Jazz, who I know was on here uh, recently, and, and Dave Seeger getting some of those virtual symposia together early. I mean, that was incredible from a, an applicant perspective. And really organized neurosurgery leadership, MSNTC, the YNC, like you guys said, I mean, I think there's been, there's obviously been a lot of hardship um, with COVID and, you know, our hearts go out to everybody who's been impacted, but uh, certainly some positives that have come out as well that I'm, I'm very appreciative for. So no, thanks for having me on. Dr. Johnson, do you have anything to add before we sign off? No, I think, I think everyone has had such great insights. I don't want to to interrupt any of them. I, I would say that what these guys have said is, is, is spot on in so many ways. I do really think that it's a testament not only to 
you know, organized neurosurgery and MTS and easy. I can never say that right. Uh, <laughs> to so the like medical months. student yeah, training camp months. center <laughs> uh, and the young neurosurgeons, that, but also to the, to the students themselves. I mean, this was, I can only imagine this was an incredible year of anxiety with applica- applications and, and somebody's up in the air. Uh, and, and I think for the most part, everybody, everybody really adapted well and, and, and has moved forward without, without skipping a beat, which is really amazing. And I'm also interested to hear from these two, maybe after the interview season, how that went virtually rather, you know, in comparison to what a standard year would be. I mean, I think that's, an, that's a logical follow-up episode at some point in the future. Um, similarly to help get the advice of these two um, for next year's group, uh, what to expect from the interviews and uh, their their thoughts and wisdoms learned having just come through it. I mean, I think all these things are going to be very helpful for people in future years. Yeah, we'll have to make that happen. Our guests have been Michael Rothbaum and Sakib Hupp. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, and leave a comment in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your audio content. Make sure to follow MSNTC and the YNC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And check out our webpage at neurosurgerytraining.org slash TNJ, where you can find other episodes and links and resources related to today's conversation. Be sure to check out the YNC's webinar series and visit their webpage on AANS.org. If you have comments or ideas for episodes or would like to join us to talk about anything neurosurgery related, our email address is tnjpodcast at neurosurgerytraining.org. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, I'd like to thank Matt Rosenthal, one of our fantastic MSNTC volunteers, for helping with the editing and processing, and also thank all the fabulous people involved in this project. Have a great day, and we look forward to next time.